into the time of Jesus. I mean, go all the way back to the dusty roads, to the day-to-day fight for survival and where's my food coming from and, and putting a lot of faith and trust in God because if it doesn't rain, I don't eat and all of this. And I want us to think about what was important to him. And what was important was the word of God. He put a lot of promises in there for them that if you read and you study my word and you follow what that says, I will bless you in life. But if you turn away from me, then I will also take those blessings away and it will drive you out of the land that you're in. Turn your books. We'll start in Deuteronomy today and we're going to be in in about three books mainly. We're going to start quickly in Deuteronomy and then we're going to bump up to Matthew and then we will uh, finish off in John so it, that way you're kind of prepared on where we're going. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going to start and the first five books is called the Torah or the law is what we normally refer to it as. The law and then the prophets. But to the Hebrew mind it was instruction. They really felt that God loved me so much that he gave me his personal instruction to guide my life. So that's how they viewed these first five books, not as things I have to do, but as things that God has given to me by grace so that when I follow those, he loves me and he blesses me through these and it keeps me out of trouble. So if you're there in chapter 6, we're going to go verses 4 to 9 to kind of see how they felt about it. This is Moses telling the people, And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today, these instructions, are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Now, now just think about this, how how they want to soak up this word. Listen to this. Impress it on your children. Talk about it when you sit at home. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols upon your hands. Bind them upon your foreheads. Write it upon the door frames of your house and upon the gates that you enter into. That sounds to me that knowing and longing for and discussing the word of God is pretty important, isn't it? Go up to chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. Just spin up five more chapters to chapter 11. We're going to be in verse 16. This again kind of repeats this thought. It says, be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. The Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will not yield the fruit. No produce will you get and you will soon perish from the good land that I'm about to give you. Fix these words of mine upon your foreheads. Bind them as symbols on your hand and your heads. Teach them to children. Talk about these things. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, 
when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Why? Here's the purpose clause. So that your days and the days of your children will be long in the land that I swore to give you and your ancestors, that they may be as the days of heavens that are above the earth. The word of God, he says, is important. It's so important that it needs to be in the forefront of your thought all the time. Teach them to your children. I mean, twice, he's just making it so important when you lie down, when you get up, when you walk. Whatever you do, keep my word upon you. It's a big deal. Now, there was an argument that was going on in those days. At what age should we start teaching a child these things? So they was going back and forth. And I've got a couple of quotes on here. When can they soak up that word as a sponge that we should start teaching them? Children are our greatest commodity, our greatest asset. And one of the most well-known historians of Jesus' day was a man named Josephus. Many of you may have heard that. A lot of people usually refer back to that. But Josephus wrote this historical nugget, and he says, Above all else, above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. Another quote of that time said that the world subsists through the breath of our children. So the word was important. They said we've got to get it down into their bones, down into their souls, so that it stays with them. This is the most important thing. And what age do we start that? Well, the Hebrew Talmud, which is kind of a commentary on the life of people during those times, made an amazing quote. And I love this one because it's funny. It says, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, but from six upwards, we accept him and we stuff him with Torah or instruction like an ox. Like an ox feeds in the field, we just stuff him and stuff him and stuff him with the word. And isn't that cool? They would start then at about six years old. And they had what they called Bet Sefer. And maybe that's where we get our kids kind of going at six years old. Now they try to get it even earlier. But when those of us that graduated with me, we usually here at Paragon, we didn't have kindergarten back in 1960. I'm not going to go there. Uh, there wasn't kindergarten here. I stayed at home and I played. But at six years old, I went to school. Here at six years old, you go to school. And they had a school that was called Bet Sefer, which means the book, the house of the book. So you know what their instruction was. It was the book. It was the word of God. And they started at six and started stuffing them with Torah and with Torah. They were expected. They went through Bet Sefer from 6 until 10 or 11. And at 10 or 11, they would graduate into a new study if they wanted to go on. But at that point, by 10 or 11 years old, you had studied the first five books. And I don't mean just studied, memorized. Yeah, memorized. By the time you were 10 or 11 years old, you memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You knew it all. You say, man, our 6 to 10-year-olds can't do that. That must have been a different time. Well, we didn't have distractions. But you take a kid that loves a music CD, and I bet you he can sing every word to that and have it memorized, can't they? 
So it's what you focus on and what your teaching is on is whether you memorize it or not. Because I know my daughter loved, I'm going to share a little secret now too, she loved to watch movies. She started at two watching Ghostbusters. By four, she could quote the entire movie. So it does work. They could quote the entire thing. And then at age 10 or 11 would be kind of like a higher learning. And it was Beit Talmud, which means the house of learning. And now you kind of went into like junior college or a college type uh, field. And they would go through the rest of the scriptures and try to have that memorized by the time that they're, say, 14 or 15. This was how important they placed on the word of God that by the time you're 15, you have almost the entire Old Testament scriptures memorized. Wow. We stuff them with Torah like an ox. Now, take out your honey stick. It's up to you if you want to take it, if you want to try it right now. But whenever you're six years old, and you go to the first day at Beth Sefer, that rabbi that would be teaching, and, and this is what Jesus would do. This was during Jesus' time, and every little community had their school at the synagogue, and they had a rabbi who would teach. And the first day, you would get your slate, and that slate would be what you would try to write the words on and, and the things that they would tell you. And that, that rabbi, he would take your slate on your first day, and he would put honey all over that slate. And then he'd say, take your finger and lick that honey. Take your tongue on there and lick it off your slate. Mm. And he'd say, man, that's good. They didn't have chemicals back then. The sweetest thing that there was was honey. That's the sweetest thing. And then that rabbi, he would say, may the word of God be like honey upon your tongue. May the word of God be the sweetest thing in your life. And as you read it, know that it is for you and it is for life and that you may have it more abundantly. And it is the sweetest thing that you will come across. And they would do that. Here's what Ezekiel said. Whenever Ezekiel tried to say about the word of God, it said, Son of man, eat this scroll that I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And then Psalm 119 and verse 103, the word of God says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. There are a lot of other scriptures that we could go to, but the point is, the word of God is to be to you the sweetest thing in your life compared to honey. So the next stop in, in Beit Talmud, that further education, they memorized the rest of the entire scriptures. But whenever they would do this, this was preparing them because the best of the best wanted to move on as something else. And so you would learn. And, and when we learn, we are taught today in our education system to spit out facts. So if I say to you, what is 2 plus 2, what's the answer? 4. Okay. To the Hebrew mind, well, it's uh, 22 if you went, nah, 
to my school. Uh, yeah, sometimes it was hard for me to learn. But to the Hebrew mind, they wanted to show you that they not only knew it, but they excelled above it. So whenever they would talk back and forth, they, they didn't spit out facts. What they did was they answered a question with a question, kind of like Jeopardy. So whenever the rabbi would say, what is 2 plus 2, they would sit and think, and they'd go, what is 16 divided by 4? They wanted to show you how well they knew that. So if they said, tell me how many times is the word well used in the second half of Genesis, they can go, boom, 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 this many times because they had it memorized. And that's how they did, and that's how they went back and forth. And this back and forth continued throughout that day. And they went to a deeper level. You remember when Jesus was 12, and they came to Jerusalem, and and then they left, and oh, where is he at? And they went back and searched, and on the third day, where did they find him? In the temple. And what was he doing? He was answering questions and giving questions back to the teachers of the law that was in there. He was in Beth Talmud. He was in his house of learning stage. And he was going back and forth with the masters, the rabbis of the law that were there. And it said that they were amazed at his teachings. And he kept asking these questions and answers in Beth Talmud. But every young man wanted to be a rabbi. Why? Because a rabbi was the most prestigious thing that there was in the community. Think about it. There's no NBA, no NFL. There's not even rock bands. You you know, you couldn't even be a rock star. So what was the most prestigious thing? Since the Torah was so important that it's like honey upon your lips and it's the best thing that you can have, if you're a teacher of the Torah, you're the most recognized person in town. You are the rock star of your area when you are a rabbi. So these kids desired to learn that, and they strove, and the best of the best would go and continue learning and try to be a rabbi themselves. And rabbis were passionate men who, man, they did crazy things like walking everywhere and cursing fig trees. You remember when Jesus did that? To get a message across, they would do anything, and these kids followed them because they wanted one day to be like them. All of them had a slightly different twist on teaching. So each rabbi had their own doctrine, kind of. They had the same basic doctrine, but there were times that, like, on the Sabbath day, keep it and remember it, and it's to be holy unto you. They sometimes came up with a lot of rules, and one might teach I think that you got to do this, this, and this, and not do this, this, and this. And the other one would say, no, I, I see you're this, but I'm going to give you that. So they had those that kind of, so everyone was known by their teaching. We still do that today a little bit, don't we? It's called denominations. We have a little bit different twists on things, and people go their own way with that. That's what happened in the day of Jesus. The rabbis had a little bit of a twist And you know what their teaching was called? Their yoke. Their teaching was called their yoke. And the exceptional students would seek out the yoke of the master that they wanted. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you. Take my teachings upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is the teaching of the rabbis, their yokes that you have. And that's a coupling device. It's something that joins you together in service, just like it did the oxen in the field to plow it. It joined you in service for God by the teaching of your rabbi. That's what the yoke was. And they wanted to be like the rabbi, but only the best of the best got to be one. And that's why it was such a competition throughout the entire trial and learning period because only the very best would get to be one. And the rabbis would be known for their teaching. And these students would come and seek out one that they liked their yoke, their teaching. And they would say, I want to follow you. And he would start questioning them. He would give him different things. They could hang around for a little while to see if they could cut the mustard or not. To see if they was worthy. Because each one of these rabbis wanted their teaching, their yoke, to be perpetuated through the generations. So they wanted the best ones who would represent that to go forward to teach it forever. So they would have all of this kind of stuff. You remember in the yoke in the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15, they're battling back and forth. Some of the Hebrew men had went to the Christians of the day and said, man, they got to be circumcised. they got to do this. And Peter stood up and said, why are you trying to burden the Gentiles with a yoke, with a teaching, with a doctrine that we ourselves couldn't keep all of this time? And now we have the grace of God through the cross of Christ, and you're trying to take them back to the old law. That was the teaching of the old law. So we get rid of that. So they come and they say, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your Talmud. I desire to take your yoke upon you. And if you passed the test, he would say, which means come, follow me. If you got to come, follow me, that's exactly what you did. Because now you were studying under the rock star, the rabbi. And you wanted to do that. And you would drop everything because you wanted to be completely like him. You would try to learn everything that he did. You would emulate his every move. If he would sit down under the tree, cross his legs, pick up a blade of grass, and think for a minute before he spoke, that's what you did. Because you wanted to be just like him. It's like little ducks following the mama duck everywhere that it went. I know this sounds crazy, but I'm going to give you a story of one of the Hebrew guys that I was studying about who gave this as a true fact. It actually happened, and he saw it, and he was part of it. They wanted to be so much like the rabbi that he went in to use the restroom, and they followed. And when he come out, he raised up his hands, and he said, Lord God, King of the universe, we thank you for the holes in our bodies. And they said the same prayers. And you think, man, that's crazy. Well, well, the prayer's not because if you have problems with one of those, you're going to be thankful that they work. But that's how they were. They praised God with everything. If they got a new garment, thank you, Lord, King of the universe, for granting me this new garment to wear. And everything was that important. And they followed their rabbi everywhere. But if you didn't make the mark... 
this is what you got after your testing period. Son, you're a good, you're a good young man. Go home. Make babies. Maybe they will become rabbis. Go ply your trade. Learn your family business. And be a fine young man and continue in the word of God. But you're not going to be a rabbi. So now turn to Matthew chapter 4. Because we said all of this is a foundation. So that hopefully we've taken ourselves back to Jesus' day. And what goes on in a community. And what he's been going through whenever he was. And now Jesus is a rabbi himself. He has started his ministry. We have just seen last week the temptations of Christ. And now, just after the temptation, he is walking along the seashore. And he's, he's giving his message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 18 of Matthew 4, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brethren. Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They're casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they dropped their nets, and they followed him. Going on from thence, he saw two more brothers, James the son of Zebedee with his brother John. They were in a ship with Zebedee, and they were mending their nets. And he called unto them, And immediately they left the ship, they left their father and followed him. So here we are. Jesus is looking for disciples to follow the rabbi. He sees Peter, Andrew, James, John. I've always wondered, without knowing this background, why when Jesus calls to them, they dropped everything and followed him. And especially James and John, because they're with Zebedee in a boat. You know, dad's there. We got to work. We're mending the nets. Jesus says, come, follow me. And what happens? They dropped him. And I don't, what I expect is Zebedee to go, hey, you boys, get back here. Why are you running away from work? We got work to do. We don't mend the nets. We don't catch the fish. The business goes bankrupt. We don't eat. Get back here and work. But I don't hear that. Why? Because a rabbi thinks and believes that I can be just like him. I can be like the rabbi and become one. So now instead of hollering, get back here on the boat, the next day the status of Zebedee is better because, hey, my boys ain't with me. That's obvious. (laughs) I don't see him anymore. No, my boys aren't with me. Well, ask me why. Because a rabbi said, come follow me. They believe my boys can be a rabbi, so they followed him. They're no longer working for me. His status in the community just rose because his boys has now been accepted as that. Wow. Now they go into the next set the Bet Midrash, where they are studying underneath of a rabbi. It was a big deal. It was an honor and such a status symbol. Now, every rabbi of that day, though, didn't do what Jesus just did. Jesus was humble, and he went and chose the disciples. You remember, usually the disciples looked for the one that had the yoke that they wanted, 
and they went after that person. That was something because you wanted your teaching to be so popular that you had flocks of students looking for you and you turned them away, taking only the best. Jesus has no students looking for him and he is going out selecting the students. Now, fast forward to Matthew 14 since we're in Matthew. Matthew 14, verse 25. Here Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He went to pray and he sent the disciples down to the boat. And he said, cross on over to the other side. And Jesus comes walking across the sea. And in verse 25, they're being tossed about. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on a lake, they were terrified. And they cried, it's a ghost. They were fearful. He's walking on the water and it's being rough and they're tossed. And to the Hebrew mind, a big lake like that, especially at night, represented like the abyss. The dark abyss in the abode of evil. They didn't like being out there. And the word when he said it's a ghost is phantasma, where we get our word phantom. There's a phantom walking on the water towards us in this abyss. And they're fearful. But then what does Jesus say in verse 27? Take courage. Don't be afraid, it is I. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come out on the water. And Jesus said, it is I, don't be afraid. And get this, Peter immediately said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. Peter, are you crazy? It's the abyss. It's dark. There's waves. Why are you doing that? What we just talked about. I want to be like my rabbi. So he says, okay, I am going to climb out and do this. Verse 29, come, Jesus said. And Peter got out of the boat. And it says he walked on the water. And he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And they climbed back into the boat and the wind died down and the lake calmed. And those that were on the boat worshipped him and said, of a truth, thou art the son of God. If it is you, bid me to come. What a crazy request until you realize that Peter wanted to be just like his rabbi. Remember, if he sits down and crosses his legs, that's the way I'm going to be. If my rabbi is out on the water, I want to be just like him. I want to do what he did. He said, step out. It is I. Come on out with me. And then he sank, and he said, save me, Lord. And Jesus replied, O you of little faith. Wherefore did you doubt? I've been taught for years by a lot of well-meaning people that you probably have too. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. And because he took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the waves and the wind that he sunk. And he lost faith in him. I think that there's application to that. I think there's a lot of truth that when we take our eyes off of Jesus and look at the world, we can become overwhelmed by the world and start to sink down. 
But when you meditate on this and you start really looking at what's happening, I got a different spin to go along with that teaching. And that little bit of a different spin is this. Look at your text. Did Jesus sink? Where was he at? He was still standing on the water, wasn't he? Who did Peter cry out to to save him? Jesus. So he didn't lose faith in Jesus because he cried out and Jesus did save him. Who did he lose faith in then? Himself. Peter got out there and he lost faith that I can be like my rabbi. He lost faith in who he was, what he had been taught. And yeah, he took his eyes off of him, but he still it was him because he still had the faith in Jesus. Why did you doubt is what the Lord says in him. Why did you doubt that you could do it? Why did you lose faith in yourself? Even though the world is collapsing around you, if you're out there following me, why, are, why do you sink? Don't lose faith in yourself. Apparently, what this tells me is that not only do I have faith in Jesus, but Jesus has faith in me. Jesus had faith in Peter. He would not have told Peter to come out on the water just to watch him sink and drown. He called him out on the water because he had faith that he could do it. He said, come on out. Follow me. I would not have asked you to do something that you can't do. That has had a profound impact on me. Apply that to yourself as well. Because, be it at Perrigan, Central Indiana, or anywhere in this big, wide world of our Lord's, He has chosen you, just as He did those disciples. You have heard the message. You have heard the come, follow me. And if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, then you have answered that call like Peter did and he then has faith in you that you can have a big impact those four men that he chose on those boats that we read about Peter Andrew James and John was from a fishing village called Bethsaida Bethsaida was a small insignificant place with a population that said at that time around 600 people I googled the population of Perrigan, Indiana this week. The last census said 659, I think it was. Perrigan is just like Bethsaida. Same size, same type of thing, living conditions. And that's where he went to choose people to follow him in his mission. But not only that... What was Peter, Andrew, James, and John doing when he called them? Fishing. Mending nets, casting nets, plying their trade. What happens when you don't get accepted by your rabbi that you said you wanted to follow? What did he tell you to do? Go home, make babies, ply your trade, Learn your family business. 
So young men who are probably 15, 16, and 17 years old are doing just that. They are rejects. They have been rejected by the rabbis, by the system of the day. They've been told, you're not good enough. Go home. Make a baby. Catch a fish. Jesus walks in to a town like Perrigan, takes the B-teamers, didn't make the A-team, you got rejected, and he takes the B-teamers who are standing around, mending their nets with their fathers, and he says, you, I want you, come, follow me. And 15, 16, 17-year-old kids turned the world upside down. B-teamers. Rejected. Your life may reflect that as well. I'm a small town. I've been rejected. I've, I've got a past. No. Lechamari. Come follow me. I'm going to turn you into something. Because I believe in you. We know that these were young boys because at this time period, you had a temple tax. And everybody who was 20 years of age and older had to pay a temple tax. And the disciples and Jesus and Peter are all around. And Peter comes up and says, the man down at the temple wants to know, are we going to pay the tax? And he says, go out and catch a fish. And in that mouth, open it up and you'll find two coins. Give him one for me and one for you. Peter's the only one that we see that had a mother-in-law at that point. Jesus was 30 years of age when he started his ministry. So it seems from what the Bible infers that the only two disciples that was 20 years old was Jesus and Peter. You've got young men, B-teamers, out there turning the world upside down. Because they wanted to be just like the rabbi. And as the band makes their way on up this morning, turn to John 15 as we close, if you would. John 15. This is the I am the vine and ye are the branches portion of the scripture. And Jesus makes a profound statement to these people that we can close this idea of today of the rabbi and the disciple. In John 15 and 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me. Remember, that's how the normal system was supposed to go. But I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Now whatsoever you ask in the name of my Father, he will give to you. I want to talk about two words there. Choice. Eklego means to make a deliberate, predetermined choice after thinking about it. He had made a decision to choose those young men. He made a predetermined decision to choose each and every one of you as well. He says in that scripture to you and to me, remember this, you didn't choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you. That word means I set you up 
and into a place for my purpose. He has given us the tools that we studied about last week, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He has given us these tools to be appointed to do what? It says, so that you might bear fruit. That word is the root word of the word in the Scripture, the rapture. Because that word means to harvest. So in other words, I have chosen you to bear fruit. And I've set you apart and I appointed you to bear fruit for the harvest that's going to be at the end of time. Go, make disciples. Come follow me. Jesus believes in each and every one of us. I hope you believe in yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's as sweet as honey from the honeycomb. It's to guide our lives and to make our lives what you would want us to be. And it says you had enough faith in me. Each one of us put that me in there. You had enough faith in me to call me and say, come follow me. Father, thank you for having faith in us. And we pray that us B-teamers in the Beth side of our day, Paragon, can turn this community in this area, in this county, upside down for Jesus Christ. We thank you for having that kind of confidence in us. In Jesus' name, amen.